0: This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to Body Count, a history podcast where we gab about death and disaster through the ages, highlighting figures, single events, time periods, whatever it may be that resulted in someone, or as is usually the case, a lot of someone's dying. If you're okay with all of that, I am your host, Jessica Manner, joined as always. One of my favorite little peppertini in the world. Ah,
2: that's right. My nickname,
1: Kara DiDemusio, aka
2: Jessica's Peppertini, apparently. She is
1: the perfect side dish to my Mediterranean salad, let me tell you. Okay.
2: Well, Jessica, guess who is back? (laughs) Becca again.
0: Ah, Jamie's back.
2: You hit hit that right where I was. Tell her friend. 'Cause I was about to go there and you just did it. I guess we're uh, in sync. Um, hey.
0: I don't I don't know any in sync songs.
2: Sorry. <laughs> the only one I know is bye bye bye, but we can't do that in the beginning or it'll confuse our listeners.
0: Oh so, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to do it to the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or <laughs> priming
2: a river, which by the way, listeners, is a spoiler alert for what Thomas actually does want us to do today. So yeah.
0: I'm, yeah, I'm going to make you cry because um, I'm back um, to talk about, uh, hopefully you've listened to the other, I think it's like five or six episodes we've done prior to this. Yeah. At
2: this, point, <laughs> at this point, y'all, if you're starting in on this one, rewind. If why? You haven't,
0: why, did you, why did you see a thing that says Gallipoli episode six yeah. and go, yeah, I want to start with that one.
2: I'm going to start <laughs> right it, it, there. It's, it's the same asshole <laughs> that flips to the end of the book and just says, I would just want to know where it's going to be at. You know, the same asshole.
0: I I don't know why you'd get this far and why you'd you'd start here and just go, yeah, I just want to start at the end. Like, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, But yes, we're continuing to talk about Gallipoli um, and all going well. We'll get to the end. So this will be the last one. So if you've been listening to every single one and going, holy shit, I can't wait for this to be done. uh, Don't worry, this will be the last one, hopefully. Uh, especially <laughs> oh, if you've been binging this if, you especially if you've been binging this and you're like quite emotionally exhausted, um, which understandable. Um, so yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna finish it off today. We're gonna talk about the end of the battle um, and or the end of the campaign and um, how they got out and uh, kind of what happened to the main characters of um, you know that, that we've been talking about, so people like uh, Hamilton, um godly not that
2: hamilton y'all. not that hamilton Again, start out episode one folks i see you listening in yeah haven't
0: so yeah like people like hamilton godly birdwood johnston um temperley who we've kind of briefly mentioned as well kind of what happens to them um to kind of round it all off oh uh, god I so, forgot
1: how invested we are in so many people. Like, yeah, Tom there's a lot Kurt of, there's a lot of names. I'm all tears and fears tonight. Okay. Like, yeah, so there's it. a lot
0: of people to remember. Um, so yeah, so we, we talked about who they all were kind of way back. Um, But hopefully we'll, we'll probably maybe put something in the, in the show notes to kind of just give you a brief, like, this is who everyone is. Um, Just in case you're like, holy shit, I don't know who this guy is. Um, so do you guys remember what happened last time? Because I know for listeners it's gonna be 30 seconds since they listened to the last one, but it's been a week since you guys listened to the last one.
1: We are dug in at a very precarious position. We've we've tunneled between both. We're gonna we're gonna have some trouble and we're gonna have a stance that I know is not gonna end well. Um and we're also wondering where, where in the fuck the Ottomans are at. We we're just about to ha- we're poised for something horrible i know that
0: yeah so what happened last time is um the wellington battalion led by lieutenant colonel william malone who's the guy we've been following um he <clears throat> led his men up to Chunuk beer from the apex which is part of the sari beer range which is what they're trying to uh, what they're trying to take um and Chunuk beer is um when they got up there they were expecting to meet heavy resistance um, because the Aucklands and the Canterbury's had basically effectively been wiped out at this point. Um, because they had, uh, in, ter- in the case of the Aucklands, they had tried to attack the position and had and done in broad daylight and been annihilated. And the Canterbury's just had a really bad commander and he just was not very good at positioning his men and got wiped out. And so Malone, with the Wellingtons, crests Chunuk Beer and finds that the Ottomans aren't there. Um, and so they take. Uh, it's a trap. They, yeah, they take the. They take the it's a um, trap the little kind of hillside um, with no shots fired, um, which is really good for them, obviously. Uh, and so Malone kind of comes to this uh, crossroads of how does he want to uh, proceed? Does he want to, uh, you know, basically run down the hill and try and capture as much, much um, territory as he can, capture as much land as he can? Or does he dig in where he is um, and try to fortify his position and he chooses the latter he chooses to fortify his position because he uh, rightfully knows that if the turks aren't here if the ottomans aren't here they're somewhere else because they've just walked away and in all likelihood they have retreat tactically retreated with the intention of coming back um rather than they've just gone on a full-scale retreat because who goes on a full-scale retreat when you're winning right like so he's like i'm gonna dig in This is when he's presented with a, uh, again, a bit of a crossroads, a bit of a, um, he needs to determine how he's going to fortify this position. And again, he has a couple of options. The one that he lands on is to fortify the uh, main Turkish trench. And then on the other side of the crest, he has his men dig a kind of supplementary trench, which is then connected by a small tunnel through the crest of the hill um and this is something that we'll, we'll get into a bit later but he's quite highly criticized for this um for this decision and just kind of just give you an idea of where we're at at this point just kind of go back a little bit from what we had last episode um you know the 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 men that were doing this um the, the, the officers were doing it as well and of course the officers were generally pretty hands-off at this kind of point in time you know they didn't really associate themselves with the uh the rank and file as it were um but in and in this particular instance, the officers were picking up entrenching tools as well, um, and they were digging the uh, supplementary trench and fortifying um, the main Turkish trench as well. Because, um, as we kind of mentioned last time, their efforts in the next few hours of digging this trench um, would, you know, would determine whether many of them lived or died, and they seem to have been extremely aware of that fact. Um, Can I just
1: say that Facebook video, or not Facebook, sorry, I'm not even on Facebook, that shit you posted on Twitter, you can look at all the maps in the world, and then I actually see and comprehend what they're digging into because of that. Oh, that thing on Twitter, it was terrible, like even more, because I now I'm a 100% into where we're at, and and the realities of trying to dig a trench in that shit. It's just horrific. I cannot yep. tell you enough, listeners, when you're digging for your literal life and you know it. I can't I can't even imagine how horrible yeah. this fucking was. Oh digging digging for terrible. your life in something in, in a substrate
0: that doesn't want to be dug. It's an extremely hard substrate. <laughs> um and you're doing this throughout the night after you've um, you know, you've you've probably got like six hours worth of sleep in the last shit like two or three days um you know it, it's it's not a good time at all and the only reason that they were able to do this or a big part of the reason they were able to do this is because there was currently a fog kind of over Chanakbeer and over the wider area so the turks wherever they were couldn't actually see them so they weren't actually being fired upon even though they were quite out in the open so that worked in their advantage however um at some point the next day um the fog did lift. And the British soldiers that were now yeah, so the British soldiers that were still crossing from the apex and many men on the crest between the two trenches came under heavy machine gun fire uh, from the Turks who were at Hill Q. Um, so if you guys if, if anyone needs to check the map um, that, that's where they were firing from. The Welsh pioneers are losing most of their officers and men before even reaching the Wellington position at eight am. Um, Again, this is in, I believe, uh, about mid to late August. I can't quite remember the actual date. Um, But yeah, so a huge wave of Turks then come out and they're all, um, you know, they're all yelling Allah and that sort of thing at the same time um, now attacked the main trench. Uh, which was manned by the Gloucestershire's, who basically immediately broke and fell back to the Wellington line, causing a small panic in Malone's men, as well as as, uh, having to now compensate for their exposed right flank. As their trench began to pile up with dead and wounded, the Wellingtons fought intensely for as long as they could until they were overrun and driven back to the support trench on Mm. the seaward side. So that's the one that they've just spent basically the entire night um, constructing and digging out. The first Turks into the forward trench Bayoneted the wounded Or simply just beat them to death With the butts of their rifles 14 others were taken captive By By now the Auckland Mounted Battalion And the Maori contingent Were sent in to reinforce them The Māori contingent were driven back by Turkish fire in a valley and had to retreat, retreat, whereas the Auckland Mountains took most of the day to get to the Wellingtons, making sure not to repeat repeat the mistake of the Canterbury's. If you remember, they actually tried to get past um, this very exposed bit and sent all of their men at once and they were just gunned down. So they were trying to be a bit more careful about that so that they didn't lose all their men. Things went from bad to worse as the artillery began to shell the Turkish line. And if you've been concentrating for the last two minutes, the Turkish line is on the ANZAC line. So, oh, quote, getting yeah, yeah. quote, they did more damage to us in half an hour than the Turks did all day. They killed two trenches of our chaps, end quote.
2: Can you imagine getting killed by friendly fire? Like, in any given conflict? That's the worst. Mm.
0: I want you to hold on to that thought. At 3 p.m., Malone sent one of his officers to Brigade to brigade HQ on uh, on the apex, sorry. So he sent one of his officers to um, where Godley and Johnston, I think actually might have been Johnston was hanging out um, on the apex with an urgent request for more reinforcements and to stop shelling the crest as it was killing his own men. Johnston and Tempoli, if you remember, Templey is the uh, kind of right-hand man of Johnston, um, found it hard to believe that three battalions had almost been wiped out on Chunuk Beer and that the position was now in critical danger of being lost, which it was. And this Chunuk Beer is like a pretty key position in this entire wider battle of Sari Beer.
1: And in Johnson end, has a bit of a drinky, drinky problem, right? Yeah, if he's I been
0: remember an correctly. He's Uh-oh. probably drunk as this is going on. Jesus. So oh, in the end... Right? Yeah, in the end, after, I assume, much convincing, they did decide to send reinforcements at dusk and to divert the artillery fire further inland. And so now Godley had been brought up to speed, and he revised the plan to capture Sari Beer. The attack on Hill 971, where the Indians were currently dug in, was to be abandoned. The Aussies were to re-engage on Hill Q, and another brigade was to occupy the northern crest of Chunuk Beer between it and Hill Q. Again, refer to the map if you're having a bit of trouble trying to figure out where all that stuff is. The Wellingtons and the Auckland mounted rifles on the top of the crest of Chunuk Bear would be reinforced by the Otagos and Wellington mounted, mounted rifles. In the afternoon, a divisional conference would be held at Brigade HQ to discuss the details of this change. So they, they decided they'd hold a meeting to you know, get down to the nitty-gritty of who'd be doing what, how it was all going to work, and all that kind of stuff. Godly, nor any of his staff, bothered to show up, leaving the key decisions in That's the hands right. of Johnston, the alcoholic.
1: Oh, that who is very much a company man, if you will. Yeah. Like,
0: yep. Yeah. Not super great. Um, so he's the highest ranking officer there, so the decisions come down to him. Um, Meanwhile, as this is kind of happening, the Kiwis on the crest are fighting for their lives in the intense heat and dust with a lack of water. Any flags that had been placed on the crest to signal their position to the Navy were now destroyed. So that was so that the Navy knew where they were and not to shell them. Didn't matter anymore. And the dead were everywhere. Now that the Wellingtons were on the rear slope, the Turks could creep up close to the crest and be within 20 metres of the trench, shooting basically at pl- point blank range, and easily get their bombs into the trench. So bombs being grenades. Any men too wounded to hold a rifle would load those uh, for that th- load for those that could. Others crawled around filling their hats with cartridges from their dead friends' pouches and taking water from their water bottles. And this, I, I really, I really want to stress that. Th- this fight at this point wasn't about holding the line anymore. This was very much about whether they were going to get home again. They were literally fighting for their lives. If the Turks overran this position, they were fucked basically. So it's um, it's getting wild. It's getting intense. So okay. five, five times the Ottomans charged the line with bayonets and bombs, and each time the <laughs> Wellington Battalion pushed them back the dead piling up in the ravine behind them. One soldier lamenting that there was 200 of them that had died or were wounded and that there was nothing anyone could do for them because they were too busy trying to not die themselves. Quote, no water and no attention and nobody could do anything. We were being shelled shelled too as we lay there. Men were all smashed up and getting smashed up even more. They knew that they were dying, end quote. In the late afternoon, the Turks had a go at shelling the Anzac position for over two hours. Thankfully, by now, a telephone link had been set up so Malone could talk directly to Brigade HQ at the Apex. He didn't have to send a runner.
2: Thank God.
1: He told I wouldn't them
2: have that, wanted that
0: job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't
1: have wanted to listen to him either, because, ooh, he I bet been... he's in a fucking fine fury.
0: Yeah. So he told them, he told Brigade HQ that his men were hard-pressed and in dire need of more ammo, bombs, tools and water and just basically, basically anything, anything. Um, but despite everything, it seemed Malone hadn't given up yet. And it wasn't oh. like Malone was sitting in the back ordering his men to do the hard work. He wasn't just, you know, just yelling at them and Ow. you know basically doing nothing.
2: That's not
1: As we've established, he's not the (laughs) type He's not the type,
0: exactly So every time the Turks threatened to break through Malone rushed forward with his men Sometimes armed only with an entrenching tool Which is basically a really small pickaxe Um, And he personally led the attack against two Turkish charges And was constantly roaming the forward and rear (sighs) trench Encouraging his men despite heavy Turkish fire Again and again, each time the Turks charged, Malone was up with a rifle and bayonet to lead the counter charge. Someone saying, quote, he kept boosting our morale and he always had a kind word, an encouraging word. It'll ease <sighs> off shortly, he promised. <sighs> They'll get tired of this. End quote.
1: Fuck you. So even
0: even Damn. despite all that, he is he is he is in the thick oh. of it. He is literally Bleeding with his men trying to push them back, again, he is they're all well aware of what happens if they don't manage to hold them where they are. So Malone's second in command tried to get him to take more care and let the officers and men do you know the actual fighting work. But Malone refused. It almost seemed like he was invincible with his rifle being shot out of his hand, but Malone himself remaining unharmed. That was until 5 pm.
1: The shelling seemed. No. Oh, no. Okay.
0: Sorry, that was at at until 5 pm. The shelling seemed to stop. Malone Mm. and Major Schofield of the Auckland Mounteds prepared to settle their troops in for the night into better defensive positions. Just as they stood up after their discussion to get cracking, a shrapnel shell burst over the HQ trench that they were in. Colonel Jordan uh, of the took uh, one to the mouth. Schofield, uh, a fatal one through the lung. Oh, and Lieutenant Colonel William George Malone, commander of the Wellington Battalion, was hit twice in the head and collapsed into uh, the second man's uh, arms, dead. He was 56. Do
2: that like that like that. Remember how I
0: told you to uh, hold that thought, Kara?
2: This shell no, was like,
1: you Fuck off, no. This, this, okay, shell,
0: this shell was likely from a British warship or a New Zealand field artillery. Oh, for fuck's sake.
2: I think no. it's being your own worst enemy, is it not? Like, oh my god. And so yeah. that's how it goes out. Um, I mean, I think Malone kind of knew he wasn't coming out of there, though.
0: Yeah, he's as we kind of talked about in one of the
2: earlier episodes... Regard, he's realistic.
0: Yeah, he, he kind of had this weird kind of notion that he wasn't coming back. He knew that he wasn't coming back in a weird in a weird way that sometimes people know those things. And I mean,
1: he's just statistically, you know, he wasn't... I was going to say, maybe he's a large numbers kind of guy, but also, like, uh Fuck, and that's so much worse because I can imagine him being that just over and over. Sometimes you need to hear, even if you know it's gonna, it's not gonna stop. That it's gonna stop. Like, oh, oh fuck, it's gonna get so much worse. Yeah. I know it's gonna get so much worse. I'm already leaking a little bit, which is apparently what I'm gonna term crying tonight. I'm sorry, no, it's late. Like, I'm leaking.
2: Are you a vegetable? Are you a leak tonight, Jessica? <laughs>
1: yeah, apparently so. Apparently so, Kara.
2: I am leaking. Cutting onions while he's podcasting. But I am processing.
1: Lewis Leaky. Okay.
2: Like, alright. It is what it is. <laughs> I didn't think I'd cry this early. If that's yeah. positive, can you imagine? Can you imagine the soldiers like witnessing this? I'm just saying like that's pretty traumatizing
0: yeah it was um by the sounds of it it was quite a quite a morale blow to um the wellingtons um, yeah you just had your being that like
2: led you into Mm. led you through sick and through thin, like through the worst of it like the person that (laughs) kept you training But also, in
1: that same turn, I might get into real bad mood really, really fucking quickly. Like,
2: Jesus
1: Christ, I've had enough.
2: You would be the one that got super like freaking robot mode. Like, I don't even know how to explain it, but just jumps into the line of fire, just going fucking Rambo on shit (laughs) inexplicably. No, yeah, but I see what you <laughs> um, I feel like especially because he had like this close influence on his guys, I mm. could see where it would go like in a way where it'd piss him off, you know. Yeah. But they also weren't in a position where they had any kind of ground at that Exactly. Point.
0: Yeah. It was um and as as we'll mention in a minute, that they, they didn't have the ability to really do anything about it. Um,
2: that's always worse too, when you want to do something and you just can't.
0: Mm. Yeah, so the capture of Chanak Beer by the Wellingtons on the 8th of August was really the climax of the, basically the entire Gallipoli campaign. Um, by the time Malone was killed at 5pm, fewer than 100 Wellingtons, a couple of units of mountains, mounted, and the odd Gloucestershire and Welsh pioneer held the ridge. Keeping in mind that a full battalion, of which the Wellingtons were, would typically consist of roughly about 2,000 men. So they were they were down to about a hundred, or less than a hundred. They were hungry, thirsty, and absolutely exhausted from 10 hours of nearly non-stop heavy fighting. That night, the Otagos and some Wellington Mounteds relieved those still defending Channock Beer. And if you remember from a few episodes ago, Malone's eldest son, Edmund, was part of the Wellington Mountains, so he may well have been among them to relieve the Wellingtons um, on Chunuk Bear. Um, however, it is not recorded if he found his father's father's body or even knew of his death at the time. Of the 760 Wellingtons who assaulted Chunuk Bear and captured it with relative ease, only 70 unwounded men walked off it. So that's a, whatever the maths is on that, that's like probably an 80 to 90% uh, casualty rate, which is just horrific. With ragged, tattered uniforms, some of them had not slept in two days and had not had water for more than 12 hours. Mm. Through the next day, the Otagos in Wellington Mounted were smashed by relentless attacks from the Turks, possibly suffering, quote, an ordeal even more intense and dreadful than Malone's men had endured. Bombed, shelled, sniped, raped with machine gun fire, suffering extremely from thirst. They utterly refused to be dislodged. And all day, the sun blazed down on their agony, end quote. So they were getting just as bad nearly, or even worse, potentially, than what the Wellingtons had just got. So for all that they had suffered... (laughs) all that they had been fucked over by their British commanders, it was really at this point that the Anzacs would really not release Chanuk Beer without making the <laughs> Ottomans pay in blood and sweat to take back their home. They were really, like this, it, it, by the sounds of it, it, as far as they were concerned, this was it. Like, if, if they were going out, they were they were going out with a bang. They were going to make the Ottomans basically take it from their cold, dead fucking hands at this point. In the end, however, on the night of the 9th of August, the Kiwis were relieved by two British regiments, which totaled about 1,500 men. Most importantly, these regiments were inexperienced. And at, oh, the same the time, no. yeah, at the same time, Ataturk's battalions were massing behind Sari Beer. Oh, they rushed Chanuk shit. Beer and other positions at dawn, killing thousands with bayonets and overrunning them. 20 lines of 300 men each. So that's 20 times 300, whatever that maths is. Uh, 6,000? Yep. Um, So 20 lines of 300 men each swept down Beer towards the apex. These are Ottoman troops that are following the the now routed um, British regiments. And remember the apex is where uh, Brigade HQ is. All Mm -hmm. allied troops, British, Indian, and Kiwi fell back in a panic with a few hundred British troops running towards the Turks with their hands up and surrender. The scene was chaos, as it seemed like they would be driven into the sea. This was basically the worst nightmare that they were trying to stop pretty much the entire way through the campaign. Um, if you remember back when they were doing the initial landings, this was the thing that they were concerned about. The, the Turks would basically just overrun them, push them into the sea, and that would be it. Yep,
3: and so and this is what... Temp-
0: yeah. So, temporally ordered the 10 Kiwi machine guns on Ronodendron Ridge, who overlooked the apex, to open fire into the chaos. These 10 machine gun crews, along with a bit of help from artillery and naval shelling, managed to stop the slaughter and hold back the Ottomans. Quote, thousands came down, hundreds went back. End quote. So this was, uh, those 10 machine gun crews are arguably what stopped the entire army being routed which is just amazing. That is So despite this uh, small victory, if you want to call it that, of stopping a rout of all units at Gallipoli, there remained a stark fact. Bear had been lost, and as such, Hamilton's August Offensive had failed. In, the, in total, 25,000 men had been committed to the attack, and after suffering 12,000 casualties across four days... They had made virtually no rounds. In fact, only one group managed to capture their objective and hold it out of the entire August offensive across those four days and 12,000 casualties. And that was the Kiwis of who were the only ones that managed to capture their actual objective. Everyone else didn't manage it. The Turks now firmly held the high ground but despite this Hamilton thought all was good. Quote, Their generals knew they were done unless they could quickly knock us off Channock Beer, so they have done it. Never mind, never say die. End quote. At this point, the Wellingtons, or what remained of them, which was not much, along with three other New Zealand battalions, were behind the machine guns on Ronodendron Ridge that had just basically saved them. On the 12th of August, Hamilton ordered Johnston and the New Zealand Infantry Brigade to return to the Apex and, quote, hold on forever, end quote. Which, to, to me, I kind of interpret that as that kind of, uh, I guess that kind of military term of you continue until the failure of your command, which is a very, uh, for those who don't know, that's a very uh, military and kind of a polite way of saying you fight until you are. All of you are literally dead. We are not coming for you. Um, that that is it. You are to hold that position until you can't do it anymore. You're on your own, basically.
1: Meanwhile, not,
2: of the others. Like, can, Go oh, ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say it's not like can't do it anymore. Like you've given up. You're exhausted. It's like you're you've given up because you're fucking dead or you're bleeding yeah. at the head. Yeah, that's brutal.
1: Meanwhile, I also want to remind everybody on the other side of that, in a, a very Lord of the Rings-esque way, if you want to come and claim it, turt doesn't give a fuck what he loses. So no. good fucking luck, because you're yeah. not, like, good luck. Come on, do it again. Like, I can do this all day. It's his fucking position of this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He is arguably more willing to lose men than the allied the Allied uh, commanders were. Um,
1: um, literally, his whole strategy is pretty much: I don't give two tits. Like, yep. if you I want it. throw
2: more men at him,
1: yeah, yeah. exactly. You you better be prepared because I'm prepared. Mm. Are you prepared? He's prepared. Yeah,
0: Oh, So in the days after his death, many paid their respects to Malone, both commanders and the rank and file soldiers.
1: Don't do this to me, Tom. Okay, okay. Fine. Hamilton okay. talked
0: about his, quote, brilliant leadership, a hero killed while leading his men with absolute contempt for danger, end quote. Godley and Birdwood praised his loyalty and leadership as well. Interestingly, none of them made mention of the loss of Channock Beer, which they would later blame him for. In fact, Godley would later acknowledge Malone's, quote, magnificent leadership, end quote, on Chanuk Beer, but in the direct aftermath, he, may, he had very little of positive note to say about that particular situation. Godley's report to Birdwood on the New Zealand role in the wider battle of Sari Beer would leave out any controversial material, making the report light on actually really any detail at all, because it was all pretty controversial. The roles of the brigade commanders, uh, Monash, who was the Australian Infantry Brigade, and Johnston, as well as the leader of the Canterbury's, Lieutenant Colonel Hughes, uh, were reported as being quote unquote valuable despite being absolute complete fuck ups. Um, a description of Malone's efforts that being of the capture and stalwart defence of Chanak Beer, resulting in the effective destruction of the Wellington Battalion and his own death, uh, but still managing to hold the ridge was not mentioned so that entire thing was not mentioned in uh anyone's reports really was basically how how well they managed to defend it um until they were they were relieved
1: so it Uh, sounds like they've got themselves a nice little scapegoat there the dead man can't defend himself
0: Yeah, and in general, the Kiwis would receive very little recognition for their valiant and, I mean, dare I say it, heroic defense of Beer, with only one Victoria Cross and two military
1: crosses being awarded. Shut the... Oh my god, now I'm in rage. Now I feel real rage. If I'm not
2: mistaken, was the one that was given for uh, the Kiwis, I think it was the one that restored the telephone connection.
0: Ah, uh, one of them was, I believe, yes.
2: Which is, can you imagine? Apparently, he got to live to like another twenty years after that. So, my God, the yep. the luck that that dude had.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Malone would have been entitled to a a Victoria Cross, a VC, uh, posthumously. However, this was never mentioned. By oh, contrast, yep. By contrast, the Aussies received seven VCs for Lone Pine. One of which, interestingly enough, went to a Kiwi, so that's that's kind of nice.
2: That's really sick. Yeah.
0: Um, the Gloucesters, who were part of the group that broke on Channock Beer, also received several awards. That wasn't the end of it, though. Rumors, apparently originating from a signaller in Birdwood's HQ, began to circle amongst the troops that Kiwis were p- the Kiwis were pushed off Chanak Beer because they had failed to dig in on the forward slope. Something that was absolutely untrue. The same source also pushed a story that the attack of the Aussie 4th Brigade in the left column had failed because they were effectively pussies and didn't fight it with enough vigour. Again, this was untrue because if you remember, they lost half of their men in the fighting. So yeah. they, they had also fought extremely, um, an extremely tough battle um, as best as they could.
2: The survivors, so disrespectful.
0: On, yeah, the survivors on the beach from these units were naturally absolutely fucking livid at hearing this because they knew the the real story, and blamed Godley and Birdwood for spreading the false information. Um, it does kind of seem, yeah, it does kind of seem that if Godly and Birdwood, it seems a bit uh, a bit murky as to whether they actively encouraged this, but at the bare minimum they. Didn't really um, do anything it, to stop which, it. Yeah.
2: Which is bad. It's bad for morale. It's yeah. bad for the fact that you're basically saying, okay, these people's lives didn't matter because they're a pussies. Mm. And God, that makes me so pissed. Like all those people sacrificed virtually for an uphill battle. Well, yep. it goes back with to with that
1: classist game. problem and, and that gentleman's war bullshit. I mean, again, yeah. The human colonists—they're that human material. They're not quite as human material as, say, British officers or mm. British men, right? Even though they are effectively. But you know, who yep. the empire has a lot to answer for. Okay, whatever that disgusts <laughs> me. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very unhappy. But let's go yep. on because going. I'm sure, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna get more unhappy, and then I'm gonna yep. cry. So.
0: Yeah, so on the twenty first twenty-first of August, Malone was remembered in a service which was attended by those who remained in his battalion. In mid-September, his Wellingtons would be withdrawn to Lemnos to rest and get themselves sorted.
1: <sighs> Fucking finally. So they were okay. they were
0: finally removed from Gallipoli.
1: That was oh. after,
0: they'd started in April, May, June, July, August, September. They had at this point spent five months in uh, the Gallipoli Peninsula, across Hellas and uh, Gallipoli itself. They weren't the only ones that needed it, though. Each Anzac battalion entered the Gallipoli on the 25th of April with 1,000 men apiece. Actually, so that number I said 2,000 earlier was wrong. It's 1,000. Apologies. Um, So on the 25th of April, they entered with 1,000 men apiece. The The strongest of them now had no more than 300 men they had lost 70%. The best, the best battalion had lost 70% of their... Holy shit. Quote, five months of monotonous food and thirst, of constant hammering at the Turk, of constant danger and fatigue, had left its mark on the hollow-cheeked, sunken-eyed men of Anzac. End quote. By mid-October, the situation was changing again all thoughts of yeah all thoughts of further progress being made at gallipoli were basically thrown out and hamilton was replaced as commander of the mediterranean expeditionary force mm-hmm. by general mm-hmm. sir charles Monroe. so he was kicked out and recalled uh, back to uh, back to britain
2: so sad
0: y- yeah i mean we're not really that unhappy about it no, exactly <laughs> everything considered um, at this point as well, Bulgaria had also aligned itself with the central powers, which allowed Germany to directly supply the Ottomans by rail all the way to Istanbul with weapons and ammo. And that was basically oh, yeah. what was stopping them at this point from absolutely just smashing the Anzacs and the, the allies off the, um, off the peninsula. Was It was kind of difficult for them to get all these supplies from Germany because Bulgaria was in the way and at that point was remaining neutral. Um, however, as I mentioned, that has just changed. Yep. Um, I wanna know so,
2: sweet the pot there, you know? Like
0: Yeah. It falls a bit outside of
1: scope for us, but yeah. <laughs> I have a book or three for you, Kara, I will recommend on uh, foreign diplomacy. Don't I, <laughs> like, like, I actually do. I always Don't worry. Think
2: some of those those um different countries that aren't like intently studied but were geographically important are interesting. Because people yeah. kind of leave them out of the narrative in both World Wars. So.
0: Mm, definitely.
2: So, so that being well, said, it was good though, Like to clarify Thomas, it was a good thing they evacuated when they did. Basically.
0: Yeah, well, yes. That, because the, the kind of key thing about this was that this meant that the allies at Gallipoli could soon be assaulted with fresh artillery batteries from the Germans. Which was not good. So... <clears throat> The British higher-ups, both military and political, now thought the war would be decided by the Western Front and didn't want to commit any more resources to Gallipoli. So it had basically fallen out of favour. This meant that any potential retreat from the peninsula was becoming more and more paramount, as it would need to be done before the winter cold set in, making supplying the besieged army there difficult. So they were really on quite a strict time limit. Given all this, Monroe, who's just been made um, leader of this entire force, recommended evacuation of Gallipoli as soon as possible, something that Hamilton was very fervently against. In fact, he even told his superiors in London that this would result in a loss of 45% of men, as well as most of the artillery and supplies. This didn't work, though, because Hamilton was about to be overruled. In a surprise and extremely secret visit, Lord Kitchener, Secretary of State for War of the British Empire, came to Gallipoli. So this was kept extremely under wraps. Um, Not even the actual um, soldiers themselves um, knew that he was coming. Um, And they actually, I believe, didn't know who he was initially, um, until obviously there was this big fanfare. He's this very important-looking man. He's all cool, dressed up and shit. Um, and then I believe they eventually worked it out who he was. Um, but initially they had no idea he was coming, and he was there to assess whether the peninsula really did actually need to be evacuated. And he actually toured the trenches and got a lay of the land of the enemy positions. And after a few days there, he formally ordered the Allies to evacuate off Gallipoli and Hellas. And so that was basically, that was that, that was that decided. This would end up being virtually the only successful military operation of the campaign. Which really fucking says something. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. In early December, all non-essential supplies and men were evacuated and sent off, um, followed by the evacuation of one regiment or battalion in each brigade uh, at a time to Lemnos. Artillery was loaded on the boats at night, surplus supplies and ammo were burnt or buried because they didn't want the Ottomans to get wind of the fact that they were trying to get out. So, you know, if they were made any indication that they were trying to make a full-scale retreat, Um, they thought the Ottomans might actually try and attack them um, when they were unprepared and that sort of thing. So they did a few different things to try and make it look like everything was fine and that nothing was really any different to the Ottomans. So fires were still burnt um, in deserted uh, shelters. Uh, Booby traps were fixed in various positions um, along with mines and self Firing rifles were set up with dripping buckets of water. And I've actually got a picture of this um, from the Gallipoli exhibit um, in Te Papa, which I will send to you guys now. Um, there it is. Um, so what you'll see there—it's a bit. It might be a bit difficult to see, but under those sandbags is a rifle that is sticking out. Um, the butt of the rifle is on the left, um, and the 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 barrel? The muzzle? whatever you want to call it? The the shooty bit is on the right. Um, And you can see there's like a tin can connected to a bit of string, um, which has got another tin can beneath it. Basically the way that it worked is that tin can at the top would be filled with water, and that water would slowly drip through a hole um, into the bottom tin can. And so when the bottom one um, had enough water in it, the whole thing kind of tipped, um, because it got so heavy, and then that would basically pull on the trigger and fire the gun whilst no one was there. Um basically the idea making it look like someone was still actually there trying to fire back at them. Um, they weren't trying to actually kill anyone, they were actually just trying to make it look like someone was there and that everything was fine. So if the Turks did decide to attack during the evacuation, the rear guard keeping them at bay would be cut off by barbed wire and expected to hold them off long enough for everyone else to make it out, which would effectively condemn them to death. Thankfully, but those guys in the rear guard, the operation was a pretty great success. The entire Anzac force of about one hundred and thirty thousand men, four hundred artillery, and fourteen thousand animals, including one tortoise called Peter, were loaded onto ships without any real losses. That is actually true. there was a tortoise called Peter <laughs> um, I believe he was eaten though unfortunately later
1: oh, on. Good. Mm. Why? can you bring me no joy Thomas <laughs> what the fuck no um.
0: oh sorry no that was uh... sorry please hold I'll just read my notes again
1: please hold just let Peter, Peter have made
0: away. it sorry no Peter made it sorry alright um, Peter so
1: oh, yeah
0: God. before we get to Peter though um, I will just say in an almost poetic coincidence the Wellingtons were among the last to leave Anzac Co. Of course they were. It's kind what? of one of those kind of one of those things for me, because it was kind of, you know, undoubtedly Malone would have been pleased with this, you know, first in, last out kind of thing. Um, so I found it quite right. you, you know, I found it quite um yeah, kind of poetic in that weird way of like, you know, he probably would have advocated for his men to stay behind had they been able to. Um, to let everyone else go um, to evacuate if if that that was what needed to be done. Um, But yeah, they brought back a tortoise called Peter. Um, Because tortoises, tortoise, tortoises, um, were all over the Gallipoli Peninsula because they're native to the region. Um, And he was given by a soldier to a nurse working in Cairo, who then brought him back to New Zealand. And he lived the life of a family pet until his natural death in 1994. Oh. Um, later in 1916 A female tortoise would be picked up By another soldier after it was run over By a gun carriage in Greece <gasps> They named it Torty because They're unoriginal <laughs> um, <Ooh>. And she <laughs> um, And she brought him home To Hawke's Bay Where she still Lives Torty, Shut is, your face. Oh Torty is still Alive in Hawke's Bay um, I believe she lives in the uh, in the zoo there in, uh, in either Napier or Hastings.
2: Oh my God. Aww. This is the story we need.
1: This yeah. is what I need for all the crying I'm going to do. So later. That's, a, that's a little in happy a story
0: in the, in the whole thing. Um, is yeah, there two tortoises were brought back to New Zealand one which is still alive and one which lived a full life and died in 94. Um, not all tortoises made it through as I mentioned before another that was picked up in Gallipoli was turned into soup by Indian soldiers when his quote unquote owner wasn't looking So that's, uh... unfortunate. that's unfortunate but the, sh- the shell was brought back to New Zealand um, and tortoise eggs were also used to make omelettes during the Gallipoli campaign as well
2: oh you in gotta do what you gotta do
1: man in 2018
2: yeah. they said Torty the tortoise is the oldest survivor of World War I
1: Correct. That is the exact article
0: not. that I read for that fact.
1: <laughs> that weirdly has made me kind of bleak again. I don't know why. Uh, yeah, uh, it's just an a, animal.
0: Yeah, it's it just is a nice an kind of, It's a nice kind of fact. Um, for anyone who's listening that has gone to Papa, they do have a picture of um, of Torty, and they talk about Torty in the, um, I believe, in the um, in the exhibit. Um, it doesn't really quite make it clear that Torty was not from Gallipoli because um, i I think it has a picture of the tortoise and then it says there's still a World War one uh you know veteran living, and it's this tortoise that lives in Hawke's Bay That's a it's
2: just confusing it's it's, you know, it's, it's the context yeah it's yeah. it's not
0: explicitly uh, uh, you know it that is true you know that that Torty is from World War One, but it's in, in, in an exhibit about Gallipoli. It's not really explicitly explained that Torty is not from Gallipoli. So which I found no. quite confusing. Um so in case anyone else has seen this and is a bit confused, yeah, that's um, yeah, Torty is not from Gallipoli. Torty is from World War One, just not Gallipoli specifically. I, but of I course, also- saying that. Saying that Peter was from Gallipoli and he died in 94 isn't quite as interesting as saying Torty was brought back from World War I and is still alive. So I can see why they chose that, but it is, it is but, slightly ambiguous.
2: So apparently when she was run over by the carriage, she only <laughs> lost a couple toes. Yeah. And they think that at the time in World War I, she was around 100. Which puts her now at about, about 200 years old. I'm telling you, if ter- if tortoises could talk, can you imagine the shit they'd say? Especially this one.
0: Yeah, I, I really heavily considered going to Hawks Bay to see if I could find Torty. Can you and, like, please do it? I will do eventually. I just, between researching this and then now, I haven't been able to get that up there. Um, but it's definitely, like, you know, there's From like a list of like places I want to go. Seeing Torty is one of them.
1: Extraordinary and stupid amount of work that Thomas has done for us, Kara. Didn't quite make it there for a Torty picture.
0: Quite... <laughs> sorry guys, I you down. I didn't get a picture. You did.
2: Picture. <laughs> you didn't I get that it. damn tortoise, sir. He'll be visiting soon. Now he'll be like understand the full story before he visits yeah,
0: Torty. Exactly. I'll, I'll on on background.
2: And you can greet Torty and say, you know. That's all you have to say to the tortoise.
0: I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if with... it's
2: that late or if I'm just amused at the idea of Thomas talking to a tortoise.
1: It's that late, but also Something I'm kind of, I'm imagining you trying to make eye contact with the tortoise as ridiculous as that is. And then <laughs> a wink, just a sly yeah. wink at like the tortoise. Wink.
0: So that um. uh, effectively uh, ends the Gallipoli campaign in terms of the actual campaign itself. Um, the, they have been evacuated, and that, that is that is the end of Gallipoli, um, as the campaign, they've now fully evacuated. In the years after the war, soldiers and historians would blame Johnston for stopping the New Zealand Infantry Brigade on Rhododendron Ridge instead of pushing, as Birdwood had ordered. And Malone would be blamed for later putting his trenches in the wrong place, resulting in the loss of Chanuk Beer and then the campaign as a whole. So he was kind of blamed for actually the failure of the entire campaign towards the end. Ooh, the assessment yeah. I'm in
1: a great deal of armchair rage right now, listeners. <laughs>
0: The assessment of Johnston's decision has somewhat been agreed with as being a tactical blunder and that he should have pushed forward and that his hesitation likely cost the lives of the Auckland Battalion as the Turks had yet to arrive in large numbers. Again, he was possibly drunk when he did this as it would be later found that he was an alcoholic that was constantly drunk. However, in saying that, they had every reason to believe an attack would fail. It was broad daylight, so their element of surprise was gone. They didn't know how large the Ottoman force was, because they were pretty shit at recon, and they only had... (laughs) They only had two of the four battalions that they were meant to have, the other two were yet to arrive, and the Aussie attack on Hills Q and 971, which was meant to support the Chanakbeer attack, was yet to begin. So... They kind of had every reason not to believe that it was actually going to work. But this singular decision has been debated since it was made up until today with people on both sides of the argument, but ultimately we will never know many of the decisions that were made or the thinking of the men who made them in those critical moments on the Apex and Chanak Beer. It's just one of those things that we'll never know what they were thinking, what information they had available to them and all that kind of stuff.
1: But if you want to watch a story and slap fight, this is a good one to jump off on because you could get some slap fights going, but you're exactly right. We can set and and posthumously say all we want. Um, I think the only thing I would add is reconnaissance is very important. Uh, Just FYI, which is completely missing largely from (laughs) all of this particular campaign. As you will know, as you listen to this, listeners, you're going, yeah, in
2: the important aerial reconnaissance, as well as I don't know, measuring the land, seeing what the terrain's like, seeing Mm. okay, logistically, what you can and cannot do, Mm, lessons to learn from Gallipoli, or maybe just don't pick there.
1: Also, I mean, yeah. nothing about this lends itself to an, an invasion. So, but the, the you know other, what? The, we're not going to get into that. In mind,
0: the, the thing to keep in mind, though, is that they weren't meant to land at Anzac Cove where they did land. Yeah, they were meant to true. land about three kilometers to the south. So it was already kind of, you know, kind of fucked from the the get go. Yeah. Um. So it, you know, it's one of those things, and it's like, would it have worked had they landed where they were meant to? I mean, we can sit here all day and and we can argue, but Ultimately, we'll never know.
1: That's exactly... It was fucked from the get-go. And instead of cutting our losses,
0: you know... Mm.
1: Element yeah. of surprise is already lost.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Malone's flack for the sighting of the trenches, though, has a bit more of a muddy history. The rumor was started in a report, um, which was apparently written by Tempoli, um, someone that hated Malone, so he may have taken the chance to lay his dead rival low and his report of events was accepted by Godley, Birdwood, and Hamilton, and then later, historians. I'm Meaning scared. that his, versions of, his version of events became the accepted one, despite the fact much of what he said had actually transpired, which largely involved himself, sol- involved himself solving Malone's mistakes, could not have happened because he wasn't inbo- involved in the battle on the ridge itself. He wasn't present for a lot of what he said actually happened. However, one of Malone's staff, who had seen the events firsthand, wrote to historians in 1927 with a detailed account correcting Tempoli's version. The Yeah. Historians, yep. So the historians promised to include it in the official hist, history that was being published in 1931. It was not. And the myth they that did. Malone... Yeah. Yep, the myth that Malone had fucked up on Channock Beer persisted for 50 years. In 1941, a British Army training guide mentioned that in a mountainous area where the enemy's artillery fire is of less importance than good field of fire, trenches should be sighted on the forward slope, which is, you know, not what um, Malone did. It mentioned that the commander of a quote-unquote British battalion at Gallipoli who ignored this and allowed the Turks to overrun them. Quote, unhappily, this commanding officer's military qualities of tenacity were matched only by the tenacity of his ideas. Rigidity of mind made him a slave of a textbook. End quote. It wasn't explicitly said that this was about Malone, but if you kind of knew what you were talking about, you would know that this was about Malone.
1: Oh yes, Thomas. You've, you've set me Quite down a rage-based research uh, yeah. <laughs> hole here recently. Um, in fact, this is all I've been doing. If it makes you feel any better, is is just sort of the ins and outs of Gallipoli, specifically to do with Malone, because of how you kind of painted this going in. And I have gone down a real rage cycle, mm. and I'm really excited that our listeners are getting to go down that same, uh, same one.
0: Exactly, and this pretty this was pretty bloody terrible for um, Malone, given his experience on Gallipoli, and that his now his name was more or less being dragged, yeah, uh, for something that he didn't actually do.
3: His uh, poor or, family. Sorry, that, he did,
0: that he did do, but wasn't the reason why they they lost. Right. The actual reason the attack failed. The attack failed was that. Quite simply, the plan was too ambitious um, and didn't take into account the issues with a night attack in rough country, as well as the terrible state the men were in and the inexperience of the British battalions. Uh, and in essence, the Anzacs had been betrayed by poor judgment and the incompetence of their commanders, namely Godley and Johnston. Uh, especially since Godley hid himself away uh, in his HQ, making Johnston the effective commander of a much larger force than his rank allowed, Um, which is just, that's just, I mean, again, it's not rocket science, that one.
1: It's just, Uh, I encourage everybody to actually look at and look real time at what, what these men are One, the timeline they're given to make an impossible attack because ambitious is is too ambitious is absolutely correct. More or less like it may help our U.S. listeners. If you've ever been to Mesa country uh, in the southwest where you've got Thousand foot like bluffs trying to negotiate these in the dark on a two hour timeline. Uh, with no light, no anything, and th- how impossible it is, and the mm. fact that they even reached the point they were supposed to reach—that even that they managed to pull it off—is fucking astounding. Like ca- what? Yeah, a the f- counter f- again. Yeah, the oh. counterpoint
0: to that though is, of course, the Ottomans let them. They potentially had the Ottomans not let them. They potentially would never have made it. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of the opposite side to that is um. The, the Wellingtons right. obviously
3: fearful credit for being the
0: only battalion to actually complete their objective, but they potentially never had, would have had the Ottomans decided to basically pull a pull a feint and re, you know do a fake retreat and then attack them again. Um, yeah. So you know, yeah, credit where credit's due, but that wouldn't have that potentially wouldn't have happened had the Ottomans done what they did. Um, oh,
1: that's an excellent point. Shit.
0: And so, by contrast, speaking of the Turks, um, Turk was near the front, moving quickly to assess situations and counterattack. He was actively engaging with his men to make sure that everything was going the way he wanted it to go. It wouldn't be until 1965 that Malone would receive final vindication and subsequent reinforcement that he was in the right. Again, though, we could spend a lot of time on these arguments as they have been constantly debated um, and that's without looking at the hypotheticals. How long could have Malone held Shannock Beer had he been properly supplied? How would Malone have handled the attack had he replaced Johnston? Which, if you remember back a few episodes episodes ago, was something that potentially could have happened. So there's a lot of there's a lot of what-ifs in there. If things had gone slightly differently, had Malone gotten what he needed, had people made slightly different decisions. Maybe they could have done it. I think ultimately the answer is no. Um, the Ottomans still had largely the upper hand, but yeah, I mean you never know. Weirder, but things have happened.
1: yeah, weirder things have happened. And I think, um, again, it's it's a command switch is what it's going to come down to a lot there. Because again, I cannot reiterate, guys, especially with all the like, they weren't fucking around on the Ottoman side. <laughs> like it yeah. was. I I just can't tell you the difference in command and and the difference in the way that it's approached and so I think the most interesting what if is if Malone had replaced like there yeah, we might like- have se- you know what I'm saying like that is the that is mm-hmm. what really intrigues me because if that had actually happened then you've got a real battle of not just, like, wills, but wits as well, which is, yeah. is uh, what's going to make it interesting. Yeah, I think that's, that's the what, biggest one.
0: Yeah, I think if any, any kind of hypothetical at that kind of point in the campaign was going to swing things towards the Allies' side, that yeah. was probably going to be one of them. Um, a, a, again, he's still dealing with quite incompetent commanders, um, you know, higher up and kind of laterally as well. So, I mean, he's still kind of, kind of ball and chained there a little bit in, in quite a large regard um but I think yeah you know you give Malone command of a much larger force um yeah suddenly you might they might have seen things kind of changing at least at one particular area of that um of that battle but Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because it's an interesting thing because I think there's going to be a lot of uh, command changes as well. Once, Like whether or not, like once you've already taken that step where he is now, once you've already taken that crucial step of crossing a really big line, I don't think he's going to hesitate at that point. I mean, he already knows what his fate could or could not be if this goes really, really terribly or even if it goes well. So. I think yeah that's interesting. I think that's probably the biggest what if that, that can be he's uh he's an interesting figure.
0: Yeah, definitely. So along with this kind of to bring this kind of into a wider the wider sort of context um there was a lot of reasons that the Gallipoli campaign failed. Um the Dardanelles commission which was kind of set up to basically figure out why it failed. Um they found in 1917 <laughs> that the big um... one was that the surprise had been lost. Um, they just, the, the shelling from the Navy early on alerted the Turks that something was coming and allowed them to prepare. Because you remember all the way back, like three or four episodes ago, they had been shelling the Turks for a good few weeks before um, before they had actually uh, done, you know, actually commenced the invasion properly.
1: You mean the Uh, Royal Navy shot their wad all across the Dardanelles and ruined it for everyone? Shocker. The (laughs) semen shot their wad. Carrie, you owe me a Coke. (laughs)
0: Um, Other issues uh, also included... Uh, also included was that the the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force was hastily put together and wasn't organized enough for the campaign or the invasion. Under the field service regulations, Hamilton was entitled to order uh, to get detailed info on the Turkish forces in the area, including where the roads and shore defenses were, the location of fresh water and detailed maps of the area and a very carefully worked out plan of attack. So he, he was actually allowed quite a bit of stuff before, um, before he was able to go in. However, he was sent to Gallipoli with a 1905, which is about a 10 years out of date handbook oh, on the Ottoman fuck. Empire, an old map, and some, note, and some notes from the foreign office, which is just not, not enough to conduct a highly complex, uh, you know, uh, invasion. Um, Historian John Laffin said about it, quote, no first-class power except Great Britain would have rushed bald-headed at the Dardanelles and Gallipoli without mounts of reflection and silent preparation by a highly trained general staff composed of the best brains (laughs) in the army, end quote. There's never been a truer
1: statement uttered. (laughs) (laughs) There has never been a more true statement made Fuck.
2: Yes, I guess I wish there was more accountability for them sacrificing people's lives like that. Like, yeah, several people got removed from command or switched over, but like, truly, it just seems like they were still in this era where there's not consequence really.
0: Yeah, that's not something that really comes up, as far as I could tell. As um, you know, you you really fucked up because you killed a bunch. You got a bunch of guys of our own guys killed. That never really seems to be a sticking point for anyone, kind of, at least immediately post um post the war. So
1: I think yeah. we established that that was never going to be an issue with so much human yeah. material literally being in like. That's the most diplomatic, like british way of putting it that i've Mm. ever heard in my life and it has stuck with me that that phrasing has literally haunted me Mm. since you said it thomas there is just something about it i literally used it today just fucking berating the way that the 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 british approach this but i i think i'm going to use that quote tomorrow that you've just given me i definitely he's a he's a guy i i get behind and i enjoy his work anyway but um what a concise statement yeah and it a really, truer word has never been spoken
0: it really kind of um he, he's talking about something quite specific there but it really the general vibe of the quote really uh really kind of epitomizes the campaign in its entirety yeah basically um, just the lack of planning, the lack of resources, the lack of virtually anything um in the entire campaign, so it's um I think I think it's quite a good quote to kind of really if you want to talk about Gallipoli in a sentence that's that's really what it is,
1: uh, yeah, I mean, again, from the beginning it was fucked, but I'm not also sure from the beginning it's not fucked, even if you land in the correct zone it yeah. you know. Absolutely. Like we said, the navy had shot their wad. The good yeah. old Royal Navy.
0: Yeah, and there was also many uh, operational issues once the invasion began, um, oh. some of which we've you know touched on throughout these episodes. Um, but there were many others going on at higher levels as well, with higher levels of command that we haven't really talked about because we don't want to talk. We don't want to spend six episodes talking about Hamilton the whole time. So. <laughs>
1: No. Um, and I think it's covered in, in different podcasts that we've done with, with different folks. Anyway, hmm. I think you're, I think it exists
2: and it definitely exists within our lexicon. You can go, no, and we find have not it. talked Hamilton, but I don't really want to talk Hamilton. We talked a little bit like Churchill, Boer War, like predating, you know, all of the timeline we're talking about, which is oh not context. recently,
1: but um back in the day. We, we had in the some, day Yeah, back in the day We had talked a little bit about it So mm-hmm. it's interesting I mean, we can always get guests on But I think Thomas has brought us a Far more poignant narrative
2: Yeah, I agree I, I think Thomas has hit the Hit the nail on the head the But he's not, not done yet We're
0: not done yet So save your <laughs> praise for the end
1: We're not done yet <laughs> He wants to earn it.
0: <laughs> so, it's likely that had the campaign been successful, um, and we've kind of so I've kind of mentioned this a few through most of the episodes, is that the ultimate goal of capturing Istanbul um, would not be reached, as they would have had to trek 240 kilometers, which is about 150 miles, uh, in rough country facing fierce resistance. Additionally there was no evidence that the Ottoman government would surrender if the city fell um so you know there was i mean the whole campaign was predicated on this idea that had no real basis in fact um or on top of that um if Bulgaria had for example joined the allied side there was no indication that they could offer any meaningful help um to put pressure on the 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 kind of opposite side of um of, of istanbul um as well interestingly though some thought that victory at gallipoli and then istanbul resulting in supplies sent to russia may have averted the collapse of the russian armies in
1: 1917 and perhaps
0: nope, yeah perhaps <laughs> even stalled the october revolution this, Ugh. however, as you mentioned, seems to be generally dismissed by modern historians. But yeah. I thought it was worth mentioning because it sounds fucking insane. Well,
1: yeah, no, it is. But if we're, you're exactly right, though, because if we go back to the, what the, the thinking was at the time, one, that you're going to fucking march to Istanbul, which is laughable. But mm-hmm. two, if that occurs, that that is going to be Again, we're we're so worried. Uh, again, it's always back to fucking Ro. what about Russia? That is yeah. laughable too. But it has to be mentioned because that's the thinking of the time.
0: Yeah, which... and that was that was part of what they were trying to do. Was they were trying to get supplies? They were trying to find another supply route to Russia. That was part of what they were trying to do. Of course, they had no idea that the you know the the October Revolution or anything like that was going to happen. Um. But yeah, you know, that was part of was part of what they were trying to do was get supplies to Russia and the Russian army, um, as well as trying to collapse the Ottoman government. You're exactly
1: dead. right. Collapse, but also like there's this fear of destabil there's there's a definite chance of destabilization, of course, not in the way that it necessarily shook out in, in yeah. good old Russia.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So going back to Malone. Uh, News of his death was naturally quite a big shock to those in both Gallipoli and back in New Zealand, specifically Taranaki, which we, of course, have not talked about in a very long time. So if you remember, Taranaki is where um, he lived. Um, Officers spoke of his battlefield leadership, impeccable organisation, how physically fit he was and how much he cared for the safety and well-being of his men. The Wellington Battalion chaplain, Father John McMenamin, I think I've pronounced that correctly, uh, wrote, quote, We loved him, every officers and man, for himself, for his generous heart, and his never-failing fairness. The news of his death was listened to by his few remaining men, with his eyes brimming over with tears. Even now the men cannot speak of him without emotion,
1: end quote. Oh, okay.
2: That's poignant. Yeah.
1: Mm. So Birdwood, right.
0: Birdwood, who had been in daily contact with Malone when he was commanding Quinn's post, was the one who eventually wrote to his wife Ida, who, if you remember, he uh, ooh, Malone made ooh. a very kind of sad uh, last letter to her um, just before they they the Battle of Saribia started.
1: Oh, well, I um, do they, remember. Mm. So
0: Birdwood wrote, quote, I always had complete confidence in him and knew that while he was there, all was going right in his regiment, for there was no detail that escaped his attention. He was the life and soul of his regiment, being idolized by both officers and men, end quote. Um, Which is kind of interesting, considering Birdwood and all these other guys didn't really like each other, um, or they didn't like Malone, um, because Godley also wrote to Ida, despite omitting Malone's death in his official report. So he wrote, quote,
1: He better fucking come correct, okay? Because if not, I'm just going to lose it. The balls that, okay? on this dude. The yeah. fucking nutsack on this asshole. Okay.
0: Yeah, so Godley wrote, quote, He was the most valiant soul I think I have ever known. I would have sooner lost a battalion than him. His loyalty and support to both to me, both in New Zealand and here, has been unfailing. I have lost one of my best friends. That's quotes.
2: cute, except for he's kind of an asshole. Yeah, what a <laughs> asshole. Fuck. What a what, so Like on the one butt. hand, I'm
0: like, I'm like on the one hand, I'm like, fuck you, Godly. You like. Two-faced piece of shit. On the other hand, you don't tell his fucking wife. I thought he was an asshole, and I'm kind of glad he's dead. You know, like <laughs> oh, right,
2: like that's true, it But there had to be some happy gentlemanly. Medium, right? Like uh, yeah. there
1: could have been. I'm glad there wasn't. Could have been a more like, honest. Like
2: he's especially without the
1: especially what's coming down the pipe and going to be thrown Malone's way for so many years like what a fucking statement from you sir
0: yeah it's i i think i do think that they um that they were being rather truthful when they kind of said you know he was very good at his job and mm-hmm. um he was kind of the life and soul of the third, of the of his battalion all this sort of stuff um i but i think that came from a place of he was very good at he was a very uh very good tactician and strategist and that kind of stuff. And all the stuff about like, he was a great guy. I was good mates with them and all this stuff. I, I don't think that that was necessarily true. Um. So yeah, I feel like there's an element of truth in there, but not, not as much as they, they were giving.
1: But also it's hard to write, you know, listen lady your husband's the most exacted guy i've ever met on the fucking planet and yeah. that's about all i have to say like think, you know I so i, I, I yeah. yeah i didn't yeah
0: <laughs> i didn't get on with them i kind of thought he was a dick good at his job
2: So, um, it was right. <laughs> you know? like r.i.p though right
0: yeah So back in New Zealand, uh, tributes from former volunteer force officers, lawyers he had worked with or opposed, local body officials and others flowed in, praising his accomplishments and the many facets of his Mm -hmm. life. Um, In particular, the massive contribution he made to Stratford and the wider Taranaki community in its early years. Despite Taranaki being mostly Protestant um, and, as such, anti-Catholic, because remember he was very Catholic—he's oh, from yeah. Irish—he was he originally mig- uh, immigrated from uh, Ireland to, oh, actually, sorry, England, um, but he was of Irish descent—and um, and full of people who considered themselves British subjects and thus anti-Irish, um, Malone oh. and his family seem to have been well liked in the area and been among its stand-up citizens. Malone himself known to be always willing to lend a hand and for his sense of humour. There is actually so much to say about him and what he contributed to to Taranaki, as well as how he felt about the empire, New Zealand, and the people who already called it home, um, that being uh, Māori as well. But, But as we've kind of really
1: he's a swirl of contradictions
0: yeah you know like we have talked about really constantly uh, he is a complex character with a deep sense of duty to his country and the desire to build something better in a new land whilst also being pretty racist towards maori and asians Um,
1: and then turning around and somehow yet like Being like, but these are the guys that I want behind me, like, sniping to get me up the hill. Like, again, swirling bunch of contradictions, this man.
0: And it's one of those what-ifs, again, is um, he's obviously experienced a lot of uh, different people, a lot of different cultures. Um, There's that story about the Indian guy that he kind of shacked up with for a night um, and and that sort of thing.
3: That's right.
0: it's one of those interesting things that it, it, had Malone survived and come back to um, Aotearoa, would his attitude have changed towards, um, you know, indigenous populations or um, or just other, you know, non-Western groups? Um,
1: probably I not. Like, but I, I just like to say wishful
2: thinking, but not I likely.
1: like to be yeah. wishful because, yeah. again, I think he's one of those guys, man, they served in the shit with me. Of all yeah. of this horseshit, like even then he's just like I don't give a shit. Like by the time it's ended, like he weirdly praises like, and of course it's a backhanded compliment because it's from Malone. Like you, it it's just the way it's going to be. But at the same time, it's not going to. I don't think there's going to be a dramatic shift. I think there is going to be at least some, at least yeah. some sort of shift there, uh, just because. He's, I think he's one of those guys that as long as you serve and as long as you're building toward that same ideology that he's building, uh, there is some shift and there is some difference. But I don't think it's going to be anything like beautiful and life changing either.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, But it's, yeah, it's one of those interesting what ifs, uh, you know, would he have um, changed his attitude, um, you know, in some way. Um, But yeah. But Mm -hmm. as for um, his wife, Ida, specifically, um, when she learned of her husband's death, she was no doubt distraught. Um, Of course, we don't know that. um, But, you know, they they were um, very, obviously, uh, very keen on each other. Um, So she was undoubtedly um, quite upset. And she actually wanted her husband's body recovered um although she hadn't learned of his death by this point um on the 8th of august a stretcher bearer did actually try to recover malone's body um, but he was killed in the attempt um, ida was also told that the turks now controlled uh, the summit of chanak beer making a recovery impossible um ida unfortunately never really recovered from the shock of all this Um, Her health quickly deteriorated and she had difficulty handling her children, resulting in five-year-old Molly being put into the care of a convent and the two boys, Dennis and Barney, being put in boarding school. This was only uh, months after Malone's death, so early 1915. Uh, Even though he had left her a sizable allowance for her to live off, Ida would remain in poverty for the next 30 years until her death. This, wasn't, yeah, this wasn't just due to her fragile state, uh, though. Uh, farm export prices collapsed in the 1920s, and there was some serious mismanagement by the ex- executors of Malone's will, so the money she was meant to receive was actually reduced. As such, she was unable to buy a home in England, um, where, she, if you remember, she had moved to England um, for the period of the war. And instead, basically, couch surfed until she was given a small cottage in Surrey for war widows. She never actually returned to New Zealand, and we can only really speculate why. No one actually knows. Um, unfortunately, this wouldn't be where the family's woes uh, ended. Uh, the children were said to be homesick, and they all they had to. Uh, sorry, the children were said to be homesick and had they. All rece- because they had all received a stain on their reputation uh, due to their father's name being dragged through the mud, as we talked about before. Two of Malone's sons that served in the war, Terry and Maurice, were seriously wounded in Gallipoli and Palestine, respectively. Both t- returned to New Zealand and were distar- discharged from the army. Edmund, if you remember, was part of the Wellington Mounted Rivals and also served in Gallipoli, won the m- military cross for his actions at Passchendaele. But was later killed during the German spring, offence, spring Offensive in 1918. As it turns out, war is something that the Malones would keep returning to, with Ida's youngest, Barney, being killed in 1943 in Anzio during the oh. Allied invasion of Italy.
2: Oh, and That's unfortunate. Happened.
0: And in 2012, Malone's great-great-grandson, Lance Corporal Rory Malone, was killed no. during the Battle of Baghak in Afghanistan as he was oh, pulling com- his commanding officer to safety. He was 26. Oh, oh,
2: fuck's sake. That's not the legacy you want. I mean, yeah, it's heroism. Okay, don't get me wrong. But it's yep. heroism and death, which isn't... Yeah. I do. Um, so
0: he, I don't know if you guys caught that at the end, but he was 26. Um, <gasps> he was a baby. Yeah.
2: Um, that's that's sad. So I assume he didn't have any. Like, did he have family? Yeah.
0: Uh, he did. Yes, his um, his mum. Uh, well, at least the article that I read mentions his mum. Um, I don't know about the rest of his family. Um, and this, uh, this battle was described by Defence Force chiefs at the time as the largest battle New Zealand soldiers had been involved in since Vietnam. Um, and I think, I, I, I think uh, as much as this is really unfortunate and sad and really awful, um, I, I do think that Malone would have been proud of them all for doing what they saw as their duty. Um, I, I do think that this was really his, his kind of bag, um, effectively.
1: Yeah, they're a ballsy bunch, just like him. Like, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, As for the rest of the surviving children, uh, life was never really the same. Uh, The large house in Stratford was sold off, and with that, the Malones effectively disappeared from the Taranaki spotlight. But what happened to the rest of the commanders? We've talked a lot about these... Um, quite colourful characters. Um, these really interesting commanders who are basically fucked up at every turn. Uh, what actually ends up happening to them after the war? Well, Hamilton's leader leadership of the MEF was the last military command of his career. In his retirement, he became the president of a type of uh, kind of returned services association. Which I don't know if you guys have that there. If that's a thing over there. I don't. Just, I don't. I don't know if it's like a British thing, because we've got them over here, but I don't know if you guys have them over there.
2: I. The only thing I can think of is kind of we have the VFW, um, veterans of foreign wars, but.
0: Yeah, I guess it's kind of the same thing. Yeah,
2: because it's. I mean. Because it's designed especially more for older folks. because um, mm. my grandpa, you know, was a member of a local chapter of it and he served over in Germany during the Korean War. Um mm. I guess that's a somewhat US, you know, I mean equivalent semi. Yeah,
0: yeah roughly. Um, but it's basically it's basically a, a a sort of um kind of boys club for yes. veterans, is effectively what yep,
3: it's exactly.
2: Those. Similar to the American Foreign Legion as well. Yeah which yeah. is another kind of boys' club, if you will. I think yeah. they gen, they've expanded out to include women, of course, but yeah, mm, yeah. Balls, yeah, typically a boys' club, though. Um,
0: yeah, so Hamilton I, rose to become president of um, this sort of organization. Interestingly, he was an early admirer of Hitler when he rose to power. Um, so oof, that. That's um, a bad legacy. Yeah, um, but he... In the kind of twenty years after um kind of Gallipoli and, and World War One, um, he hadn't re- he didn't really do much um that was really of note. Um, and so he died in London in 1947, aged 94. Um for Birdwood, who if you remember, he was the commander of the Anzacs overall. Um, he actually followed the Anzacs' return to Egypt, which is where they went after Gallipoli. Um They evacuated from Gallipoli, where they reorganized and reinforced into two separate units. Um, Birdwood took command of the first unit, and it was sent uh, to the Western Front and fought in the Battle of the Somme. So, yeah.
2: That's another bloody... Wow. Oh, I did do a little bit of researching, Thomas. Mm -hmm. Um, William Malone does have other... So, his... um, The Rory, his descendant that died in Afghanistan, he did have other brothers surviving because his mom mentioned that, that it was a loss. So at least we know it wasn't like an only child situation because that would be particularly horrific. Um, Mm. But apparently they do some sort of anniversary of his death. They do like a committee to celebrate, which is wholesome, like to honor his memory. Hmm, Which yeah. that's wholesome, and again, I think, like you said, though, like I think Malone would be pleased in a way—not that obviously his descendants would die young, but that mm-hmm. you know, what I mean, they had such honorable ways, if you will, to go out yeah, doing definitely. their duty.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um. So yeah. So Jess, are boy- you
2: crying again?
1: <laughs> not yet, but a little <laughs> bit
0: i oh, we're
2: gonna, oh you're we, leaking. We got,
0: we got we got one more. We got one more cry. That we de- I'm definitely going to hit you with one more. I know I am. Um, you're
2: sadist? I
0: uh, yeah. Um so yeah, Birdwood um took uh it was called ANZAC 1, I believe it was, to um to the Battle of the Somme. And at the time, he advocated for a Dominion army made up of Australians, New Zealanders and Canadians under his own command, but for a A whole bunch of different reasons that didn't end up happening. Um, He was eventually promoted to the full rank of general in October 1917, taking command of the Australia Corps before being appointed aide-de-camp general to the king in November. He was later given command of the British Fifth Army in 1918, in May, um, liberating the cities of Lille and Tournai. After the war in 1920, he toured Australia with quite some amount of fanfare, Um, before going to command an army in India. He was then promoted to field marshal um, of the British and Australian armies in 1925, and went on to become governor-general of India and commander-in-chief of India in the same year. Um, After leaving military service in 1930, he tried to become governor-general of Australia, with the backing of the king and the British government. Um, However, the Australian Prime Minister at the time opposed this, um, and he was instead appointed to a much more minor office. Um, After doing some writing for a rural magazine, he returned to Gallipoli in 1936 to visit the war memorials. He fully retired in 1938 and became a baron in that same year, and he also wrote an autobiography called Khaki and Gown in 1941 and another called In My Time, Recollections and Anecdotes in 1946. He would later die in Hampton Court Palace in London in oh, 1951 at the age bougie. 55. Yeah, very bougie. Um, not, a, he's... not a
2: ripe old age, though, I'm, I will say that.
0: yeah um he is actually buried in twickenham cemetery which is also in london and the kind of interesting part about this is the australian government still pays for the upkeep of his grave to this day so he has this really big connection with australia for some reason (laughs) so you know there's that um Godley would also follow the Anzacs to Egypt, uh, where he would eventually take command of the second Anzac unit. So again, they were split into two units. Birdwood took one, Godley took the other. This unit headed to France a little time after Birdwood's unit. Uh, He would be engaged in smaller battles on the Western Front, such as the Battle of Messines, which he performed well in, but the New Zealand Expeditionary Force still really didn't think highly of him. Uh, his his reputation in the NZDF had really fucking tanked after Gallipoli. Um, and Godley and his unit also played a key role in the Battle of Passchendaele, but Godley himself made a lot of similar errors that he made in Gallipoli, resulting in a heavy loss of life, which he again downplayed in his reports. During this time, he was constantly under fire from the New Zealand Defence Minister, who was concerned that Australia and Canada weren't giving the same amount of men and supplies as New, as New Zealand? The minister also started to question the quality of British generalship. So even back home, um, they were they were questioning um, whether you know British command was actually the right way to go. And this actually nearly resulted in Godley's sacking, but it never ended up happening. He did retain his command naturally. Yeah. So his ANZAC unit was later cannibalized until, not literally cannibalized, what I mean is it was stripped and taken to various things before anyone panics too much. Um, so it was it was stripped and put into other units um, until it was made up of British units during the German Spring Offensive in 1918. He was awarded various honors by the French, Serbs and Belgians at the end of the war. Uh, after the war, he took command of a British army corps in occupied Germany, while still remaining in an admin capacity for the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. In 1920, he became the military secretary to the Secretary of State of War for a couple of years before returning to Germany to become commander-in-chief of the British Army there. Uh, sorry, the British Army of the Rhine. He was promoted to General in 1923, before taking the English English Southern Command, which is basically like a Home Defence Command. In 1928, he was made Governor of Gibraltar, which he remained in until his retirement in 1933, making tours of New Zealand in 1934 and 1935. He apparently held his New Zealand soldiers in such high esteem that he included the image of a New Zealand infantryman on his coat of arms when he joined a chivalric order in 1928, because for some fucking reason they were still doing those in 1928. (laughs) We're still doing them now, but yeah, so he included that in his coat of arms. In 1936, he nearly became governor of New South Wales in Australia, but he didn't make it. He did write some memoirs about his life. What a uh, shame. Yeah, what a shame. Yeah, what a shame. Um So he wrote some memoirs about his life in nineteen thirty nine titled "Life of an Irish Soldier" among other articles. Another book he wrote was called "British Military History in South America for some fucking reason <laughs> um, in nineteen thirty six his wife died in New Zealand, uh, where she had remained since he came uh, here he came to New Zealand initially, which is a bit strange. Um, because he seems to have remained outside of New Zealand for a lot of his life um, after the war. The New Zealand government sent a wreath on behalf of the country. At the age of 72, after the outbreak of World War II, he offered his his services to the New Zealand government, but he received no response. He was later given (laughs) command... (laughs) Ghosted. Absolutely fucking ghosted. He was later given command of a platoon of Home Guard in um, Britain, he would fully retire in Berkshire, uh, Berkshire, not long after that. Godley died in a rest home in Oxford in 1957 at the age of 90. Johnston, Damn. our drunk man, Johnston was in poor health for most of the Gallipoli campaign—fucking shocker—and um, this continued afterwards as well, putting him in and out of hospital. After the reorganisation of the Anzacs in Egypt, Johnston's brigade was named the First Infantry Brigade, one of the three brigades in the New Zealand Division. This was placed in Birdwood's unit of the Anzacs and went to the Western Front, and if you remember, this was um, the one that went to the Battle of the Somme. So Johnston was in battle, involved in the Battle of the Somme. In poor health, he went to Britain in 19, uh, December 1916 for treatment, and was diagnosed with neurasthenia, neurasthenia, that's how I'm going to pronounce it, which is a uh, not well-defined illness, but it caused fatigue, headaches, irritability, and is mostly associated with, quote, emotional disturbance, end quote, which is all not things you want associated with a military commander. Despite this, he took command of an infantry brigade uh, camp called Sling Camp, near Bulford in England which if you know anything about or you really know your um your New Zealand military history this is where New Zealand soldiers quite famously carved a giant Kiwi on the hillside because they were really fucking bored um, and the commanders <laughs> needed to give them something to occupy themselves with
2: my god
0: so if you go to Bulford um, in England today there is actually a giant Kiwi with the initials NZ on the side of the hill um, where they built this uh, this giant Kiwi on the hillside because they needed something to do. So it's still there. Um, uh, where am I at? Here we are. Johnston would return to the Western Front in July 1917, but was killed two months later by sniper fire at the age of 45. So a- as for um, Malone and uh his uh son edmund they are both commemorated in stratford's hall of remembrance which has pictures of those from the area who died in world war one which again i don't know if that's a common thing in america but it's a very common thing here in new zealand is um, war memorials with people's names from the area particularly in small towns and that sort of stuff um in 1923, the Malone Memorial Gates were erected at the entrance of King Edward Park in Stratford, being paid for by the officers of the Wellington Regiment of the New Zealand Army, who now commemorate Chunuk Bear Day annually.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, okay.
0: Uh, in 1991, a large concentrated effort or concerted effort was made to restore Malone's reputation and acknowledge his immense role at Gallipoli. This resulted in the Exceptional Services Honours Bill that was introduced to Parliament, as the government wasn't able to reward him with anything posthumously. This bill would allow them to do that to Kiwis who had given outstanding service to their country but weren't recognised when they were living. Unfortunately, this bill didn't pass the select committee stage, and neither did a similar <laughs> bill in 1997. So, Can
2: you propose this?
0: Uh, I, I mean, I you're... wish I could, but...
2: I <laughs> uh... guess we got it. Okay, we have to campaign for Thomas to be an MP.
1: Wow, that's... um. Yeah, because they're going to give two tits about two. <laughs> hey, he's already American. been
2: in there.
0: Yeah, hey, New Zealand Green Party, call me. Uh, <laughs>
2: right? <laughs> shoot, your, shoot your shot.
0: Um, thankfully, that wasn't quite the end of it, though. In August Good. 2005, Prime Minister at the time, Helen Clark, unveiled the William G. Malone commemorative plaque in the Grand Hall of the Parliament Buildings. And in 2010 the Stratford District Council erected a statue of Malone in the town's main street. And if you follow me on uh. social media, I have seen that statue. That is something I have been to, and I have taken a picture of it. Um, <laughs> so I haven't quite. We'll
1: forgive you the tortoise then. <laughs>
0: so I was actually, interesting enough, when I was researching this, uh, my job um, actually said, hey, do you want to go up to Taranaki and do some stuff up there? And I was like, oh yeah, and when I planned, and when I was planning <laughs> out the route that we were going to take I realised I had to go through Stratford and I was like, oh my god I can go see the statue yes. <laughs>
2: so, <laughs> oh, so I went and saw the statue nicely.
0: so that was really nice I had, so that was really cool when I was actually deep in the goo of researching this, I got to go see his statue um, which was really, excuse me, really really cool so, yeah, so I have actually seen There we day.
1: go, everybody. Now I'm officially crying.
0: I'm, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. Oh,
1: fuck you. You're just going to wreck me, aren't you? Go ahead. Because, well, go because
0: ahead. I I have a bit of a reputation of um, – I don't know if you guys – you guys won't have seen or heard the uh, uncut version of my Bob Semple with um, – Caden from uh, Happy Hour History but I went on probably what was like approximately a 20 minute patriotic rant about New Zealand Um, so I've got a (laughs) script this time uh, to keep me on track Um, but just as kind of some uh, kind of thoughts kind of at the end Um, Malone was arguably one of the best minds in the Gallipoli campaign Uh, He had spent years studying various military leaders and wars throughout history, absorbing everything they had to say and then putting it to practical use in the field. He knew that surprise and good recon were two key elements in any battle, something that his superiors seemed to barely grasp. 20 years after the campaign, the official historian of Gallipoli praised Malone's plan that he devised in May when he was at, in Heller's to break out from Anzac and across Beer, saying, quote, it was an extraordinarily astute appreciation uh, to have made so early in the campaign. And he was dead right. End quote. Which, of course, the, his plan was the one that was more or less what they tried to do um, in uh, you know, with the Battle of Sari Bear, it's just, you know, that's the the kind of incompetence of the British generals didn't really, you know, kind of got that all stuffed up. The core elements of Malone's plan were reflected in the eventual August offensive, as I mentioned. On top of this, his big brain, was the fact that he made sure his men were well prepared. Endless lectures, tactical exercises, drills, marching in the Egyptian heat and food <laughs> Malone trained and pushed his Wellingtons harder than any other ANZAC unit resulting in most of the soldiers hating him. Then of course there was the amazing organizational skills in making sure that his positions were clean and tidy making his men even more efficient. Even though he was absolutely without a shadow of a doubt fucking batshit insane no one (laughs) Absolutely no one could say that his crazy tra- training regimes hadn't made his men ready for what the Turks would throw at them. And they did throw everything they had. <laughs> it's important to keep in mind, as again, as we have mentioned, that we were the invaders. The Kiwis, the, the Anzacs, the British, the, the allies in general, were the invaders. The Ottomans that were defending Gallipoli we're only doing what anyone or only doing what anyone would do when an invading army lands on their shores. Which I think, as Hamilton quite eloquently put, hold on forever. Although Temple was known to butt heads with Malone, he still spoke many praises of him, saying that his name was never part of mess hall small talk, unless it was talk of hard work, intellectual exercise and efficiency. As a result of all this, the Wellington Battalion was potentially the most disciplined, steadfast, physically fit, and its officers of much better practical skills and common sense than any other unit on the peninsula. In spite of this fact, uh, that the British soldiers were held up as a pride of the empire, and that Anzac troops were inferior. So they were actually, um, you know, the, the British soldiers throughout the campaign were... Really seen as the main bulk of the unit, like these are the guys that are going to get the work done. The ANZACs are just the cannon fodder. That image was shattered at Gallipoli because mostly because of that crazy fucker Malone um, and other <laughs> men like him. That's to say nothing of his relationship with his wife. Um, he constantly wrote to her, lining up the letters she wrote, uh, wrote back by order of date, and would reread them frequently putting them next to a picture of her. Upon receiving more pictures of her, he wrote, quote, if I were a stranger, I should fall in love with you at the sight of them. But you know that I am already in love with the bravest and sweetest and loveliest woman in my world. End quote. Oh. Even, his, yeah, even his own men knew that when her letters arrived, it was the highlight of his day. He often wrote, oh. would often write back uh, about the flowers he found too um honeysuckle roses poppies daisies and all sorts of others uh even sending some back to her while others were found between the pages of his copy of the field service regulations when they were that recovered about after the right. beer yeah
2: <laughs> you were you're doing this to just watch her leak like uh,
1: yeah let's I'm not done just get it over with
0: um And his love for her wasn't even diminished, um, even being so far away and facing death every day, though he was concerned that the war would physically age him to the point where it it might make their coupling seem weird. Um, Because, of course, remember, there was already quite an age gap. Um, He even admits that perhaps he had been too distant in the past, putting community community affairs above his own. But he does add that he always intended for this to be so, uh, so he could provide for his family. And he ultimately uh, summed it up in his last letter to Ida, saying that though the choice to go to war was his own, quote, the sacrifice was really yours, end quote. And Malone was such a complex man, one of vision, drive, resourcefulness, dedication, and a deep sense that he should do what he must to protect his family and his country. He always stood up for what he believed in, whether that be his men, or his intensity, and racism. For what we know, uh, Malone defended Beer like it was the very soil of New Zealand itself, because he knew what was at stake. The fate of his Wellingtons, who he was fighting shoulder to shoulder with, and the rest of the Anzacs behind him. Despite being an invader two times over on someone else's land, I personally think the sheer white-knuckle force of willpower to keep going to defend his men on that ridge and earlier to his superiors is to be commended. Malone and his Wellingtons performed probably one of the most outstanding feats in, the New, Zealand's, in New Zealand's military history on the, on the ridge of Beer, and he is probably one of the best military commanders our country has ever seen. It is a cruel irony that potentially one of our own howitzers would take him out. It is at least a small consolation to know that if anyone knew the risks and had made peace with themselves and God, it would have been Malone. Approximately 400 members of the Wellington Battalion remain in Gallipoli, just below the crest of Chanukbeer, never to see home again. One of them is Malone. 16,000 more Anzacs lie elsewhere on the peninsula in Australia and New Zealand's greatest military disaster, many of them young and ignorant of what they would be facing in this foreign land. A further uh, 28,000 allies and 87,000 Ottomans also remain, totaling 130,000 total deaths for the campaign. To close this episode, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Mustafa Kemal um, who was, as we've mentioned, was the uh, Ottoman commander um, who was chiefly fighting against the Anzacs, um, which he said after the Gallipoli campaign when our countries were at peace. Quote Those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives are now lying in the soil of, friendly country, of a friendly country and are, and, and are in peace. They have become our sons as well. <laughs>
1: Oh, oh my fuck you, Thomas. Oh. I knew that one would get you. I
0: knew that one would
3: get you.
1: Oh it did. Oh. And that, that quote is um You just destroyed me, sir. Fuck. Oh. That quote
0: in the Topapa exhibit that we've talked about numerous times, that is one of the last things that you see um as you exit the Gallipoli exhibit is that quote. Um, I actually wrote it when I was in there to put into this episode. And right beneath that quote is a little, um, is a quite a little unassuming uh, bit of water with quite a lot of pebbles and rocks and things in it. If you actually read the bit uh, that's underneath that quote in that exhibit, those rocks are actually from Anzac Cove in the Gallipoli Peninsula. Um, they were actually brought over for that exhibit specifically. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, that, um, after roughly about six episodes, is my uh, lecture, effectively, on uh, the Gallipoli campaign, in particular, uh, following uh, Lieutenant Colonel William George Malone and uh, the Wellington Battalion.
1: (laughs) Through that particular lens. And just so we all know, I am weeping like a small child. Fuck, Thomas, you just destroyed me. That was, you were right. Yep. If that's how you were going to wrap it up, you were right. You were going to make me fucking weep, sir. Oh, yep. Oh, let me center myself and get back to like, I, Damn. what a
2: fucking well, tale, Thomas. Holy thanks. shit. What you can find, I was going to say, for anyone that's like blown, blown to bits about thomas um you can find and support him would you like to share your socials sure Patreon?
0: i can do that um yeah you can find me on the history well the name of my podcast is the history of aotearoa new zealand podcast um which is of course found where you find podcasts and stuff um you can find me on twitter at history aotearoa and you can find me on facebook uh, History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast. Um, same thing on Instagram. History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast. Same thing on Patreon uh, as well. If you want to give me money for <laughs> this kind of stuff, um, and fucking
1: deserves now... <laughs> it. What a goddamn story. Okay,
2: you should do Go Ko-Fi ahead. as well.
1: No, let uh, him spell it. Let him spell it. It's uh, important yeah, it's that just, he spells
3: uh,
0: it. Oh. Uh, Aotearoa. If you don't know how it's spelled, is A O T E A R O A. Um but yeah that's that's basically me
1: <laughs>
2: fuck me Ooh. well I will at least very quickly say where you can find Jessica me and body count because she is wiping but I am sorry, I'm a weird, peaks.
1: weepy, like oh god damn, what a story, Thomas. You no, nailed that it. Was... It's, ab- it's absolutely fantastic, and I cannot tell you thank you enough. And it was
2: I want to so say for anyone that for anyone that enjoyed it, tweet Thomas and tweet us, Body Count Pod and Jessica B. Manor and Cara Di <laughs> If there was something you really liked about the episode series, please let us know. We love direct feedback. And I'm sure Thomas would be chiffed to bits if if you would say, hey, you know, I thought this was interesting about Malone or the campaign or the terrain. Let us know what you found interesting. If this is, you know, what you like, you may want to listen to his podcast as well, given they're not, you know, into the modern Context, he's still working his way chronologically throughout <laughs> New Zealand Very history. Gradually. Very, Very gradually. gradually. He'll get there. Um, and um, you can also rate and review both Thomas's show, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Pod Chaser. Same with Body Count Pod. But those five stars mean a lot because for anyone that hasn't heard our spiel before, the nutshell is algorithms <sighs> determine what gets recommended. So the easiest way to make sure the podcasts you enjoy are getting recommended, if you're not sharing and you're not telling people, is to rate and review, just say a few words about what you're enjoying. And that, that makes a huge difference, um, both to the creators, of course, and for other people that might enjoy our show. So um, please, if you enjoyed it, um, let us know, whether it be on Twitter, um, Thomas's Instagram as well now for the podcast. Um, We're not on it as much, but we promise we will try. (laughs) Um, And we are on Facebook as well. And that is also a work in progress. So that being said, you can support Body Count Pod on Patreon, of course. We will have more exclusive content very soon for you. Um, Jessica's about finished with the Body Count History Pod website. So that's pretty exciting. Um, We'll have all kinds of recommendations on what we're reading what rabbit holes (laughs) we're going down to, what documentaries we're checking out. Um, So stay tuned for that. Um, But seriously, thank you listeners for um, keeping with us because quite frankly, um, Thomas, you set the bar. So high, um, go give I... him so much money, y'all!
1: Like throw wow, your dollars. He made me just—I am weeping like a child. It was so good. It was so good. Throw your money at Thomas.
0: Thank you. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. It's um, it's always good to be able to tell these kind of stories, um, particularly ones that, uh, although Malone's uh, story is quite well known in kind of military circles and that kind of stuff um
2: it's not to the, the great audience and certainly not, to not the yeah. United States
0: but also generally just talking about um people that were on the ground during the Gallipoli campaign um and just generally in in wars and in life in general there's not a lot of um discussion around people that were really doing doing the hard yards um and these sorts of things um so it's always good to be able to talk about and bring more light to um you know people that were really um
2: they're experiencing it
0: yeah instead of talking about like hamilton who spent mostly the the whole campaign on a fucking boat you know like (laughs) um, yeah
2: and i agree i think i think with military history there's too much time spent on the i guess strategizing of war Mm -hmm. and not enough of a mesh between that and the key human <laughs> integral part of war, especially when we look at world war one or even the immediately like the immediate predecessors in a lot of the colonial wars, right? Mm-hmm. There's not enough discussion and nuanced take on boots on the ground, so to yeah. speak. So I, I really appreciate what you did because I think it will make people think about it, but in a human way, like,
3: which is more
2: interesting in my opinion, because I think one of the the struggles for many people with history is the way that it's presented oftentimes in some academia or even just in mandatory schools um, in the U S is dates. You have to know dates. You have to know battles, but that's not the stuff that sticks with you when you grow old. It's not the things that get you. And Mm. I think that's why people, Um, what people like a good story and I think the key is balancing narrative and fact, in my opinion, to keep people entranced because if you're presenting it, but you're doing it pedantically, well, that's a shame because you're not, you're not engaging and you're not continuing Mm. the interest. So that being said, Thomas, real quick, I wanted you to mention some of the resources again. I know you've shared them as you've gone along, but, um, for (sighs) anyone that's interested, he has done a lot of digging, um, several of the museums that are quite convenient to him, actually. Yeah, um, I do have a lot of access. large
0: advantage in their regards.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Home field advantage, yeah. Um, yeah um, but yeah, sorry. what were your sorry. sources? <laughs>
0: Um, the main kind of sources I used, um, as, as we've talked a lot about, um, I went to Te Papa and looked at the Gallipoli exhibit. Um, I've been to that a few times. Um, so if you are local to Wellington or local to New Zealand and you are coming to Wellington for some reason, I highly, highly, highly recommend that. Um, it is, I believe, closing this year. Um, it was originally what? only set up... Yeah, it was originally only set up for a year. It started on the 25th of April um in 2015 and it was only meant to go for a year. Um and then they extended it to I believe it was this year. Um so if you are in New Zealand and you do want to see that exhibit after listening to this, um you you haven't got long. I think it's about I think it's yeah, I think it's only like four or five more months or something um before it closes down, maybe even less than that. So
1: do, you know, is they virtual, do they have virtual open access? Do you know? Uh, I don't believe they do. I'd you have know what, object- guys? No. We can find out with a cursory Google search. Thomas has done enough. Let us not put that on him as well. <laughs> um,
0: I can look. Hang on. I, I will look up specifically when it is being uh, shut down. Because I feel like that's important. Uh. Oh. Uh.
1: Bear in mind we are in a time of quarantine and New Zealand wants none of our nonsense. We don't, I mean they've done quite well. Understandably.
0: <laughs> oh, sorry. Um I was slightly incorrect. It finishes on the twentieth of, 25th of April next year in 2022. Hmm. So you've still got a year to go. Um but again, if you are in New Zealand and you do want to um see that stuff, um, it is really, really, really good um a workshop have built these huge um like figures um to kind of show you the the some scenes from the war um you know people lying down people eating food people um a nurse and uh, this machine gun crew which is really cool um and uh yeah they've got like like you know hair on their arms and um you know they're wearing like fabric um like, uh, uniforms and stuff, and it's, it's really, really good, and the information's really good, and they have these really cool, like, holographic-y type, um, 3D models of the terrain, um, then, then they will talk to you about, um, you know, look, you know, these guys went up here, and then they held this position, and these guys went around here, but they, they had to double back, and all this stuff, and it shows you a really good view of things like Quinn's Post, and the different hills, and, You know, and again, gives you a really good appreciation of the kind of terrain that these guys were dealing with, the real topography and the verticality that they had to overcome. Um, So yeah, I really cannot more highly recommend um, the Te Papa exhibit. It is really, really, really good. Um, I every time I go through, I've been like through five times now, and I see a different thing. I, I like I learn something different every single time. It is just so good. And the other thing they do actually as well is they have this little bunker um that you can sit in and they have um someone reading uh malone's letters to ida or at least some of his letters to ida um yeah which is um for a lot of yeah for a lot of people they go in there they sit down they go oh yeah that's kind of weird like you know it's kind of interesting then they leave it has really no emotional impact so if you do listen to this you may have a bit more of emotional impact as to what those letters mean now um so again, yeah, there's a lot of stuff about Malone in there as well, specifically, um, as well as many of his um, Wellingtons and other various commanders, um, and and as well, um, just various other random people, um, like medical people, um, stuff about the donkeys and pack animals that were there, um, and that sort of stuff. There's a there's a whole lot of other stuff we we have not covered um, at all, um, in there as well. Um, but the other main. Uh, the other main uh, book that I used was uh, called Man of Iron by Jock Vennel, um, which is really, really, really good. It basically covers his life from start to finish. Um, so if that's that's something that you, you know, if you want to learn more about him and read all the stuff about like his political career that I didn't talk about, um, that's all in there. Um, a yeah, lot more there's about... a
1: lot that Thomas cut that y'all I don't cut even so realize. Much shit. Oh, stupid! He cut so much. So
0: yeah, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff, particularly in his home, his home life, um, particular anecdotes about where it, like in places like in Egypt and that sort of stuff. I cut out. Um, so you know, there's still a lot. You know, so if you've listened to this and gone, oh, well, I don't need that book. Um, there's still a lot in here that I cut. Um, but you yeah, do. so those were kind of two the the two main sources that I used along with you know, various others, um, other smaller ones um, here and there to kind of take bits. Um, for example, uh, the right at the end there, I gave you the total figure of 130,000 deaths. Uh, yeah, 130,000 deaths at Gallipoli. Um, that uh, number was recently revised um, in the last couple of years. Um, so I actually got that from a from a article somewhere else, um, for example. So there's a few other things I pulled from various other places, like the Torty thing and stuff as well. Um, but yeah the um, man of iron by jock Venal and the Tapapa exhibit were kind of the two main sources that i used
2: also i am so invested in you having to take a pilgrimage to see torty
3: i really and want I to, to do let it. you
2: know torty has never been to an anzac memorial service because torty is always hibernating for 5 5 months that coincide <laughs> with it i found yeah, it this would, out from I, a 2020 I article was, um,
0: yeah, April's in our autumn. Um, so yeah, that makes sense.
2: Can you imagine the shit that turtles seen? It was literally run over for fuck's sake. Yeah, a hundred years ago, run over. Run right over. Yeah,
0: about a hundred years ago. Or
2: just God, over. If, years. Honestly, between that and the Galapagos island turtles, that tortoises, <laughs> not turtles, that have been around so long, can you imagine the shit? If you could encapsulate what they've witnessed, mm-hmm. honestly, like it's wild to me. I'm not sure why I'm going to be thinking of Torty before bed, but I will. And if anything happens to Torty before you get to visit Torty, I will be very upset.
0: I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to be really upset. Well. I am...
2: <laughs> We're invested
1: well, I'm in you. Quite focused on that. Haunting, beautiful last quote that Thomas gave to
2: cap oh, this from episode. Ataturk.
1: Knowing, yeah. knowing specifically, it was just going to destroy me for at least the next two days.
0: Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's a really yeah, it's a really nice. And quote I can't cause...
1: describe to you the look of pride on his face right now. I was pretty happy it. He is just emotionally destroyed me for multiple days but yeah no it is a it was an excellent choice and it was like very powerful
0: it's a it's a very nice quote especially when you consider that other went on to um become the the, the, effectively the founder of the modern turkish republic um so it's really uh yeah really a really kind of poignant quote um after after the war considering that yeah he's the leader of the country that um or or the successor country of the um of who we fought against as well as being the commander um at the at the actual battle itself which i think lends a lot of um uh kind of weight to that quote as well it's not just the head of state being making a um uh you know making like a uh, some sort of quote for a you know, to make it sound nice. He was actually there. Um, Also made questionable decisions, but he was on the front lines um, (laughs) doing stuff as well. Um, So he at least, he at least was familiar with what was going on. So, yeah.
2: Jeez.
1: I mean, again, we're going to wrap it up, but I cannot tell you. Go heap money upon Thomas because holy shit. What a story you brought us! I am incredibly, and as a person who a lot of times is like, "Oh, that's impressed." I am incredibly fucking impressed. I am blown away by the work you did for us. What a story! Um, just for our listeners, these are going to come out all in one week um, leading up to ANZAC Day. So uh, we got a full, we have a lot of production to do. <laughs> <laughs> on these, but I think it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be the incredibly easiest powerful,
0: of for it's Thomas. just going to be Yeah, I don't have to do anything at yeah. this point, I'm done I'm done after
2: this <laughs> Not only that, but like, the fact that like you didn't really need a lot of outtakes, you were just like come and get it <laughs>
0: Uh, that's just that's um that's just the way that i i script things i just had the whole thing written out so i can read it so yeah audience if it sounds like i was reading off a word doc the entire time yeah it's because i was (laughs) so
1: oh no they're quite familiar with that they're familiar with me (laughs) they're very
3: familiar you're expecting me me
1: to remember all of that exactly You expect me to be that good on the fly with bullet points? Fuck off. No, I'm here to tell you a story. Do you want the story or do you not? Um, yeah. But you have you have brought us a story, Thomas, that was unbelievably fantastic from beginning to end. If anything can get me up in the middle of the night to listen to a story, it is definitely you and it is definitely this particular story. And what a lens you have chosen it's not a lens a lot of people are going to be familiar with. And I think it's going to blow a lot of people away. It, it really will. So well, thank that's you. Good. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. This was fantastic.
0: Well, thank you for having me on and getting up in the middle of the night, effectively two months in a row <laughs> to, to hear me
1: tell this. <laughs> because we're bad at time. Um, it is what that's it is. That's a different you story. Know? <laughs> different story but well fucking worth it well worth it and and thank you so much on on Karenai's and i's behalf on our listeners behalf in advance please tweet at thomas how fantastic this was because holy shit what a labor of love like i i cannot tell you it, it's absolutely it you've blown me away Which is hard to do, Thomas, but you really have. So thank you.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much.
1: That being said, we're going to wrap it up, everybody. You'll be able, again, to hear all of these. You'll know this whole uh, song and dance by the time you finish all of this. Again, this has been a massive labor of love. And it's been a lot of talking, a lot of late nights. But I am so excited. That Thomas has brought us all this story and it's it's gonna be fantastic. So, you know, go out. You're gonna be aware of Anzac Day, America, for the first time in your <laughs> lives. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, uh, by the time you finish listening to this. So thank you, Thomas. We are gonna go ahead and wrap it up. Goodbye, everyone.